predictions, prophecies made in the Torah. What are the odds that that's going to happen? And did they actually happen? We're going back to that game. Part two, probably our final segment. All right. Oh. So, back to the sad stuff. So, there's two rebukes. There's two tochachas. And both of them actually say the same idea. In Vayikra Chavav, source number two, the Torah tells us, Vashimoti ani et After you sin, if you sin, I will destroy the land. And the land will be destroyed or made desolate. Okay? Empty. And I'm going to throw you into the nations. And your land will be desolate. It, it stresses it again. And there's going to be swords throughout your city. Then the land will be um, appeased from its Shabbos. All while you're in your enemy's land, the land is going to rest. It stresses again, then the land is going to rest. Seemingly, as Rashi explained, because it didn't rest during the times when you were supposed to rest. Every seventh year, we were supposed to rest. But we didn't keep Shemitah, apparently. That's one of the sins of why we're going into exile. And so now, Midah, Kineg, and Midah, the land is going to rest, but you are going to be in exile, and it's not going to, it's going to be resting that whole time. Okay? So that's the prediction of the Torah. Okay? Good. Yes? So are we really keeping Shemitah oh. here and now? That's a good question. Because we got lots of rabbis who saying you can't okay, so go around it. So that's a fascinating question that deserves a whole series of shears on of itself about heter mechira and whether that's lichad chila or whether that's pidieved, whether that's still relevant today um, or not relevant today. Of course, there's many different rabbis with many different shitas on that particular issue. Different camps take different... Uh, opinions on that issue, but indeed, you, you definitely have those people who say, everyone would agree that we need to, we need to strengthen ourselves and do Shemitah to the best of our ability, both uh, the farmers and individual uh, consumers, um, and uh, like we said, there's different rabbis who have different perspectives uh, on uh, the best way to fulfill uh, Shemitah, so it deserves a shir in of itself, of nowadays, what is, how, what is the best way in which we can fulfill Shemitah, absolutely. Um, Rav Cook's opinion again. Rav Cook, they had the Mechira. Rav Cook, and nowadays, Rav Cook, of course, you know, was many years ago. And again, it's a huge sugi in of itself, but a sheer on it on its own. We taste, we 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 touched upon an answer. Okay, but we're we're sticking with our topic predictions. The prediction seems pretty crazy. Now, when we get kicked out of the land of Israel, which we talked about last week, scattered throughout the world, the land will still rest. The land will still remain in desolation. Yeah? Okay. So now that's always the first thing is what's the prediction? The next thing we're always going to do is what are the odds? What are the odds? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm the, a, a gambler and we're at taking bets. What are the odds that a land that was settled, that was very successful, 
that we know during the times of the second Beit HaMikdash, both from Josephus, an independent historian, and from many accounts in the Talmud, and from archaeological evidence, was a settled land. There's no dispute, as far as I know, in the secular world that, that Israel was a settled land with booming agriculture during the first and second temple. Settled by the Jews. Settled by the Jews. Jews were settling it. Of course, at different time periods. But yeah, we lived here. The land was settled. The land was blooming. And then we leave. And the Torah seems to be indicating it's going to not be settled until you come back. Okay? So what are the odds of that happening? I'm asking you guys. Not a hypothetical question. What do you think? What are the odds that you think that's going to happen? And, and prove your point. Yeah. You think that's good odds? We saw what happened, but you're forget about history. You're you're 2,500 years ago, the, and you're uh, you're you're taking bets. And one guy says, "This Jewish people, remember, we're 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 assuming that the Torah was written 2,500 years ago, and we don't know who, because we're taking a skeptical perspective." And you're saying, "I think this land is not only going to get." scattered, it's not only going to destroy, but whenever this Jewish people is not going to be in the land, it's going to remain desolate, and it's going to remain un, un, uh, blooming, un, not, 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 uh, not, no, not growing to the same extent that it grew once. And what are the odds that that's going to happen? So it could happen. Anything could happen. I don't think it's impossible that a land would remain uninhabited and un, um, uninhabitable. But I would say personally, it's very low odds. And why would, what am I basing that on? First of all, I'll give you a mushal. Let's say you have Katsefet, and it's right in the middle of Ben Yehuda Street. And it's like the most popular ice cream place. Every seminary girl is spending 40 shekel a lunch break on her big froyo. And it's so popular. And then one day the owner decides, nah, I'm going to go to Tel Aviv. He shuts it down. What are the odds that no other store will ever come back and ever be successful on Ben Yehuda Street? I would say it's pretty low odds because it's a really good location and it was doing really well. And, and, and so why wouldn't it work? It could happen, obviously, but it's, I would bet against it. So similarly here, the Jewish people seem to have a really good real estate. Right? We're right in the middle of the trade routes, right? Of all the different countries, Asia and Africa. And if it's growing really well during the temple time, during Israel's times, then obviously it must grow well, right? It must make nice grapes and nice uh, dates. So why wouldn't it continue to produce grapes? I mean, people want to grow. It could be the first 20 years, 30. Okay, but why would whoever takes over the land not establish a thriving culture, a thri thriving agriculture, a thriving economy. Why, why not? That seems to be illogical. And yet, that's what the author of the Torah seems to be predicting. A very, to me, unlikely thing to happen that it will never be grow ever again. And I'll give a second proof of why I think it's unlikely. Because we have other examples of history of other countries which uh, were left, were kicked out of their land, or left their land. Take, for example, uh, the American Indians, or the Native Americans, right? They were kicked out of America, sadly enough, and did America ever grow 
Did America ever establish uh, a, a culture? Okay, however you want to put it. Not so important. Out of the parts that they had natively had, and okay. they put somewhere else in, right. in the United States. Not important for our, for our purposes. They were here, and now they went there. Okay, why is a different story? But did America bloom? Yeah. Of yeah. course America bloomed. Or take the original Australians. Right? The original Australians are not the ones there now, but there was a different tribe there, and they were kicked out in Australia. No, they're still there. It's just that they're very few now. Okay. There's not as many. Right, same, same as the Native Americans. But same concept. And this is actually, I mean, you can really go to any country in the world. It's not so such a It's Any country that people get kicked out, and it eventually gets settled. That's, it, that's just the way of the world. It's not so crazy. Most of the time. So... If I'm a, a gambler, I'm assuming, I don't know, this uh, Torah author, it seems, it seems a little crazy. It seems a little wild and crazy. Let's go see this inside a little bit in the source sheets. The rabbi, oh, now I forgot to bring down one more source related to this in Devarim. The Devarim Chavtes writes, There's going to be a Gentile is going to come from a far land. And you're going to see the affliction of the land. And all the bad things that happen. Wow, it's been burnt. Like, it's, it's totally devastated by sulfur and salt. Nothing will sprout from it. It's going to be totally destroyed. Because God was so angry. So you're going to have some foreigner on the outside who's going to say, wow, this place is mamish. Destroyed. That's what the Torah predicts. Okay. So the Ramban is the one, Nachmanides, in the 12th century, who famously publicizes this prophecy, this prediction of the Torah. Right? We all know the Ramban himself made Aliyah, comes to Israel after the dispute of Barcelona. He beats uh, Pablo Cristiani, and then he comes to Israel, his lifelong dream, in his early 70s, and he sees the land, and he writes some parts of his commentary. And he writes, he, he explains on our psukim, that which is stated here, and your enemies shall dwell therein, shall be desolate in it, constitutes a good tiding, proclaiming that during all of our exiles, our land will not accept our enemies. So he's saying, even though there's a terrible tochah, there's something good about it. Our, our enemies will not be able to flourish the same way that we were able to flourish. Similarly, writes the Maharsha. Rav Shmuel Edels, a 16th century tzaddik, a gaon, who writes an amazing commentary on the Gemara, an amazing Kabbalist. He also writes, As long as Israel will not dwell on its land, the land does not give of her produce, as she is accustomed. When she will begin to reflourish, however, and give her of her fruits in abundance, this is a clear sign that the end, the time of redemption is approaching when all of Israel will return to their land as the Gemara in Sanhedrin also writes, okay? So he takes it further and says, when the land comes back, we know the Mashiach is on her way. Okay, as we'll get to talk more about that in a few moments. So the Ramban continued, when he got there in the, oh, in the 1260s, what shall I tell you concerning the condition of the land? She is greatly forsaken, and her desolation is great. That which is of greater holiness is more desolate that which is of lesser than that which is of lesser holiness. And what was the most destroyed place, the most desolate of all of Israel? Here, Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim 
after all of the different crusaders and uh, the Mamluks and all the different fighting and the wars and uh, all the terrible things that happened historically here, how many Jews lived in all of Yerushalayim? Two Jews. Two Jews. Two tanners. He found two tanner Jews, who I guess were employed by the Muslims who ran the place at the time. He went to Hebron. And, sorry? He went to Hebron. He went to Shechem. He finally arrives in Yerushalayim. And he gets on his knees and starts rebuilding a shul, the Ramban synagogue. is famous. So that's the story of the Ramban seeing the desolation and yet feeling the Shechina when it comes to Yerushalayim Ira Kodesh. Okay? In any case, for our purposes, what we're seeing is that this prediction has come true. That the land is remaining desolate. It's remaining destroyed. It's remaining uninhabited. Of course, he was not the first. He's just the most famous. Another uh, famous uh, tour, tour guide is this week's Parsha. Kaftor Beperach. In, in the, in the uh, menorah, we talk about the, the different knobs on the menorah. So Kaftor Beperach is also the name of a famous uh, rabbi, uh, Ishtar Parchi who us tour guides like to quote a lot, because he toured the land. And he talks also about the desolation and the destruction of the land. There's also many Christian tourists, tourists and other great rabbis who all throughout the generations toured the land, and they all are telling the same story, that for most of history, the land of Israel remained desolate, uninhabitable. Now, I'll be honest, not completely, not everywhere. Of course, there were certain time periods where certain areas were settled. Okay, right, you know, the Crusaders settled a little bit here, and the Byzantines settled about here, and the Mamluks settled here. I'm not claiming that no part of Israel ever had any uh, civilization or any blooming. I don't think that would be accurate. But what I am claiming is that nothing that compares to the way it was during the Second Temple period, and nothing certainly that compares to the way that it is today. So comparatively, it was not settled. Yeah. And probably the, these people who tried to settle the land, they attempted to do it, but they weren't able to permanently settle there. And that's why we didn't find them there when we came back. Exactly. And that, that also is unbelievable miraculous. It, it, it's 2,000 years is a long time. One would assume that by that time, you know, take any other country, it would be built up really nicely. Everything would, would be beautiful. And yet, when the Jews got back here in the 1880s, it was still a relatively desolate area. Okay, I know that's politically controversial nowadays to say that, ironically enough, but it's, it's, it's a fact, whether you like it or not, that most of the land was unsettled, and the Jews, the early Zionists, come back, and, uh, and it's not an inhabited land for the most part. Of course, there are particular areas where some people live, Bedouins are living in certain areas, but for the most part, it was an un uninhabited land, which is what allowed... Uh, the Jews to start buying back land and coming back to Israel, as, as we're alluding to, as we talked a lot about last week. But again, focusing, focusing more, all we're showing is that indeed this prophecy is came true of, of the land being uninhabited. When I came to Israel in 2011, when I used to go to the Dead Sea from Jerusalem, after Malia Dunim, mm -hmm. it was all desert, all sandy. Yeah. If you go now, Amazing. It's, it's in the open land. It's not, uh, there are no acclaim there. Right. But naturally, 
It just on its own started blooming. Yes. Wow, that's amazing. That's an amazing story. Amazing. Yeah, so sometimes uh, it's through our hard work, and sometimes Hashem just uh, does the work for us. Unbelievable. So getting back to Devarim, remember I brought in uh, Devarim, how a foreigner is going to come to your land and be like, wow, astonished, this place is so destroyed. So very famously, Mark Twain wrote in his book, Innocence Abroad, of all the lands there are for dismal dis- dis- scenery, I think Palestine must be in the prince. The hills are barren and they're full of dull color. They're dull of color. They're of unpicturesque in shape. The valleys are unsightly deserts, tinged with a feeble vegetation and that has an expression about it of being sorrowful and despondent. It just looks sad in other words. The Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee sleep in the midst of a vast stretch of hill and plain wherein the eye rests upon no pleasant tint. It is a hopeless, dreary, heartbroken land. So it's kind of being funny, but it's kind of sad. The land just looks Sad. That's what Mark Twain said. And we'll take him for his word. He has no reason to, to exaggerate that that was the state of the land in 1867. And now you look around, obviously that is, uh, that is, not, that is not the case. In terms of the, the settling on a civilization level, uh, another non-Jewish historian, Sir John William Dosen in Modern Science and Bible Lands, source uh, in the third page, right? Until today, no people has succeeded in establishing national dominion on the land of Israel. No national unity or spirit of nationalism has acquired any hold there. The mixed multitude of itinerant tribes that managed to settle there did so on lease as temporary residents. It seems that they await the return of the permanent residents of the land. So he, I couldn't have said it any nicely. Of course, there were individuals who came here and settled but for 2,000 years, and it, uh, very shockingly, very surprisingly, the land of Israel remained relatively uninhabited and uh, no real strong civilization uh, established a permanent uh, stand there, despite the fact that everyone you would think would be fighting over the Holy Land. It was the most famous land in, in, in the Bible, as we know, and still no one with all the fighting was able to establish a permanent stronghold uh, there. The Ramadan finishes, this is a proof, a great proof and assurance to us. From the whole inhabited part of the world, one cannot find such good and large land which was always lived in, and yet it is as ruined as it is today. For since the time that we left it, it has not accepted any nation or people. They all try to settle it, but to no avail. By the way, Derech Agav, this is all on a biblical level. It's amazing because you often see that the Torah uh, makes the land of Israel, like it gives it a personality. It says it's going to spit you out if you're bad. It talks about the land as if it has like human emotions. And that's pretty amazing that that's exactly what we see. It's loyal, as Rav Soloveitchik writes, to its people. When, it, when we're here, it sprouts. And when we're not here, then it doesn't. And that's just unbelievable. And it's sad for us. It misses us. It misses us, yeah. Aim and when we come back, it literally, it literally loves us. And it's like a mother bringing us back home, gathering us back home. Did you read it? I've read the, the Kitzer version. They have a, a, a quick version. Nachon. Teichcha is a beautiful, beautiful story. was very fond of... Who was speaking about it?
All right, so I think we've established a stab, uh, prophecy number one, prediction number one, the land will remain desolate, pretty unlikely, and yet it happened. On a super related part two of this prophecy is that one day the land of Israel will come back and sprout and bloom. Okay, just to look at this inside, we have the holy prophet Ezekiel, Yechezkel Hanavi, writes so beautifully, Ve'atem, in the 36th chapter, Harei Yisrael, mountains of Israel, Anpechem titnu, uperiachem tisu, your mountains will give produce and bear fruit for your people. La Yisrael ki kervu lavok, for that day of redemption is coming. And the land that were destroyed will be settled. You're going to be re- see the resettling of the land. And you know what this is coming to teach us? This is going to be an indication that I am God. This is meant to remind us that there is a Lord in the world. Okay? That's what Yechezkel says. And one day, one day, this land is going to start producing Fruits, producing its fruits once again. And um, on a similar prophecy number three, on a related note, the prophecy of Yeshayahu, Perak Laman Hey, Paroch Tifrach, the Tagel Afgilat Varanen, Kvod Almanon, Nitan Lashem Hadar Karmel, Vashon Aran, Yeru Kvod Hashem Hadar Lehenu. It shall blossom abundantly. It shall exalt and shout. It shall receive the glory of Lebanon, the, they shall, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They shall behold the glory of God, the splendor of, of our God. This is referring to the blossoming of the Negev. Okay, that one day this desert, that nothing, very hard to get anything to blossom, and yet one day Isaiah prophesizes somehow miraculously this is going to blossom. And sorry, I don't have color, but. Still, nonetheless, you get the idea. If you look at the, ni- the next page, you see this beautiful uh, flower, the beautiful uh, agriculture, which is in the middle of a desert. Okay, and look it up on Google Images. You'll see the beautiful red flowers, which start blossoming uh, in this time of year. And uh, we nowadays, actually, Israel produces three times the amount of dates and exports three times the amount of dates as America. We make more medjool dates, which is the most popular type of dates, than all of America, and which is unbelievable. And, you know, I could go on and on and on, but I think we all know, we just see around us, if you traveled uh, down to the Jordan Valley, or if you traveled up to the north, or you just really travel anywhere in this country, uh, you're going to see unbelievable agriculture, you're going to see what was going on in Gush Katif before... Uh, we gave it away, and just the unbelievable agriculture that's sprouting anywhere, including in the Negev. Yeah. And in Malay Arduin, uh-huh. you ride the bus there. Yeah. And you first go in, you see the, especially in the summertime, you see the. The blossom. The, the, the fruit. You see the dates, the date trees lining the streets, and you see the fruit. Nachan. It's amazing. It's amazing. So we uh, don't have to use our creativity. Just look outside and you're seeing this prophecy coming true. Yeah. yeah. Our first trip to Israel in 2005, we traveled up Route 9 to this spot and uh, driving and driving and driving. It was pretty boring. It was just like sand, you know. Go over a hill and boom, there's these date orchards. 
Just, I don't know. Out of nowhere, dude. Yeah, just like in the Torah when the I'm sorry, I was walking, there's 70 dates. And then when I when I go down to the Yamamelech often with uh, tourists and you see that all the like out of nowhere these date trees just blossoming. Now to be clear, obviously the blooming of Israel has also to do with the um, hard work and the genius of those hardworking uh, Zionists. But, you know, there's no doubt. Uh, actually, this prophecy that I was reading of Isaiah, of Yeshayahu, was on Ben-Gurion's desk, always. Because he was a big believer that one of his dreams was to make the desert bloom, to, make, to, to use Israeli Jewish minds and to sprout the desert and to show the world that we can t- take a, a desert and make it bloom and, make, and using amazing, you know, drip drop agriculture and taking water from up north and finding the exact types of water and, and all the genius uh, uh, technology and hard work that Israel has done has made this come true. But, but we know that it also fulfills the prophecy of, of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and obviously nothing can go without Siyata Dishmaya, without Hashem's, Hashem's help. So here we see the teaming up of pure desire of those, you know, of those Zionists and also Hashem's prophecy mm-hmm. coming together. Um, does the land grow for the Arabs? Does the land grow for the Arabs? Well, um, certainly not to the same extent as uh, for the Jews. I'm not going to say there was never any, uh, you know, there's been a long history. There were certain uh, agricultural successes in certain areas, uh, but certainly you can't compare the uh, agricultural success of the land of Israel, uh, you know, when other nations, including the Arabs, were here as compared to today. I think Gush Katif is uh, the best example of that. When it was just unbelievably, you know, most successful agricultural in the world, and we give it away, and look nothing. what's there now. Nothing. Absolutely nothing, and worse. So I think that's the most palpable example of, uh, of this prophecy and its contrast, sadly. Yeah. It also, it also tells the world, if they would look at their Bibles, it would tell them that they're liars. The Arabs are liars when they say this land is theirs, and they have to kick the Jews out, and so on and so on, because they will not grow anything here if they manage to do that. Again, it will happen, but we don't. But Hashem says that it won't. Hashem says it's going to grow Hashem for us. Says Hashem. We're going to be here always now. Hashem. Hashem. More and more and more. Amen. All right. Beautiful. Let's con- let's back to our topic. So we did prophecy of interdependence of the land, the land blooming, and uh, the the negative blooming. Unbelievable. We see it in front of our eyes. Let's talk about another famous prophecy that we've all heard of. And that is the whole, before Yeshayahu, let's go to Avram Avinu. If you look in Bereshis, you'd bet. Hashem tells Avram Avinu, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you a great name. And you will be a blessing to the world. And those you bless, you'll be blessed. And those you curse, you will be cursed. And all those who bless you, and, and, and you are going to be a blessing for all the families of the earth. The, the, the children of Abraham are going to be a blessing, are going to bring blessing to the whole world. Or, said a little differently, Yeshayahu writes famously, Nations shall walk by your light. You're going to be a light to the nations. Or as Hashem told Am Yisrael, 
Mamlechet Kohenim Bagoy Kadosh. You're going to be a nation of teachers. You're going to teach the world the, the ways of Akadosh Baruch Hu. So that's the prediction that we, the Jewish people, are going to have an exceptional, disproportional, uh, positive effect on the world. Okay? That's the prediction. Now, if I were to make that prediction 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago, about the ancient uh, Girgashites or the ancient Chivites, uh, or even some other country that survived somehow. I don't know. I don't want to make any other countries mad at me. But just take any other random country with the same population of the Jews at that time. And we said, you're going to be the light to the nations. Would that prediction have come true? I think the answer is probably not. At least not for most of them. Because most nations have an effect proportional to their population. Okay? Some a little bit more, some a little bit less. But, you know, I wouldn't assume that uh, this particular nation, the Jewish nation, would have a bigger effect than any other nation statistically. There's no particular reason why I would imagine that, you know, this particular nation would have such a big effect. Okay? Agreed? You with me? Now, part two. Did the Jewish nation have a particular big impact on the world in a positive way? What do you think? Have the Jewish people have it? Throughout the last 2,500, 3,000 years of history, have we had a big effect, a, po- a disproportionately big effect on history? Well, Absolutely. tell me how. Explain to me. Give, prove me. Not at all. Just in the last... Okay, years. so you're already talking about already the last 100 years. Let's go back a little bit before. Let's go with chronologically. Nothing. No, I think we've made, we made some big, big impact on the world, not just in the last 100 years. Uh, so some of the big things that I think we... No, I would disagree. I would disagree. I would say that actually... We didn't spread monotheism. Okay. Okay. So, let's start with monotheism. Since that was the the first topic we brought up. Monotheism is the belief of God. We know that the world did not always believe so strongly in one God. And nowadays, a good, I don't know, 50-60% of the world believes in one God. And uh, they didn't always. Now, the Jewish people happen to believe quite strongly in the concept of monotheism. It's, it's a big deal in the Torah. And I don't know if we invented the concept. Maybe there were other religions who had a similar concept. Uh, but we certainly popularized the concept uh, to a great extent. Um, and you're right that other nations who were inspired by, by Judaism, like Christianity and Islam, spread it further, as the Rambam says, and made it even more popular which the Rambam says is, is Siata Dishmai, it was a part of God's plan. So I'm not going to say that we're the only ones who get credit for this one, but certainly we were, we were the ones who, and, who, who brought, uh, who brought, initiated, who initiated that, that made Christianity and Islam jump on our bandwagon. So I think definitely we get some credit for monotheism. And another one that I think we certainly get some credit for is the Bible, the Torah. It definitely uh, it has had a huge impact. I don't think there's anyone who would argue, no matter how religious you are, that the Torah, the Bible has had, you just ha- you'd have to be completely ignorant of history to claim that the Bible has not had a huge effect, and I think a very positive effect, on world history, on ethics, on morality, and that would not exist, obviously, if not for uh, the children of Abraham. What other uh, concepts... Um, are connected with the Jewish people. How about um, the concept of Kamocha, which Christianity claims also to be uh, their main tenet? Uh, where do you think they got that idea from? 
loving your fellow as yourself, social responsibility, uh, basic concept of social justice, basic concept of the yearning for peace, like Yeshayahu talks about so much peace as an ideal. These are things that the world takes for granted nowadays, but they only take it for granted because we popularized it and kept pushing for it for all these years. These are ideas which were initiated by the Torah, by different, by, by different prophets, by, by different visions of the Torah. And I definitely think we get a lot of credit for spreading these ideas to the world. Shalom Achshav. Shalom Achshav. Okay. We should have Shalom Achshav. I agree. Please God. We should have the Mashiach. We should have Shalom Achshav. Now that's, that's in the bigger picture in the first thousand of years. You guys also pointed out that just in the last hundred years, fifty years, ten years, the Jewish people have had a tremendously, a tremendous effect uh, upon the world. For example, there's been a lot of big Jewish thinkers that have enlightened the world in huge ways. Okay, maybe some of them more positive, maybe some negative, but a lot of big, a lot of big, big ways. Who are some famous Jewish thinkers who've had a big impact? Throw, throw some ideas out there. Maimonides certainly has had a huge impact on the world. That that would be a big one. Maybe Albert Einstein would be a, a big Jewish guy. Um, maybe Karl Marx. Maybe you don't like some of his ideas, but he certainly had a big impact on the world. But nothing, no Jewish content. No Jewish content. That's true. So Karl Marx, I, I think, and and Sigmund Freud would be big Jews. Um, whether they brought light or or, or less light, I think uh, is a is a discussion for a, another matter. It depends who you ask, but uh, certainly big. They had a big impact. My, my favorite would be Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks, okay. Um, whoever invented ways, that guy. Whoever invented all those nice Israeli ma- uh, apps, all the amazing Israeli technology, like drip drop irrigation, just helping all those African countries. Um, all of the desalination, which is going to save thousands of lives. And how, how about aspirin and penicillin? Aspirin and penicillin. I didn't know that was invented by Jews, but I'll, I'll take your word for that. Okay, I still think it's had some sort of uh, good impact on the world, even if it's not perfect. Um, and what other what else comes to mind? Um, the fact that 23% of Nobel Prize winners... Um, have been Jewish when we're less, we're half of 1% of the population is exceptional. And I don't know how a rational skeptic would explain the fact that 23% of Nobel Prize winners, most of them, not all, (laughs) there's some notable exceptions of Nobel Prize winners who uh, haven't brought good to the world, like Yasser Arafat. But most of them uh, have actually brought good to the world, a good chunk of them, and a ridiculously high percentage of them were Jewish. Bringing light to the world. How do you explain that? If you're a, ske- a, a skeptic, uh, the, 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 all the great effect that we brought into the world, I think the simplest explanation would be, that's what the Bible predicts, that the Torah, Torah says, this, that's, that's the best answer. Any other an- explanation to me is just a wild guess. Norway yeah. is promoting Hamas. Okay, so then we'll have another one uh, on the list of... Unbelievable. Okay, Yala. Let's, uh, let's continue, because we have 12 minutes left, and we're doing great. All right. So that, I think, uh, I think you would agree with me that we have had a giant effect on the world. By the way, I didn't, effect, I didn't include this in the official prophecies, but at least according to our, con- our we, we're all familiar with the concept that Jews are supposed to have money. Not every Jew, don't get me wrong, but uh, there's a concept of 
when God blesses Avram, it, it refers to money. Rashi says it refers to money. Perhaps Berchush Gadol refers to this. And it's a known fact that the Jew, Jewish people statistically, not every individual, but statistically are the most affluent uh, people uh, in the world. Certainly, in, in, Actually, I think it's Seriously. I don't think that's true. From what I saw, it, it is the Jewish people, and the Japanese are number two uh, in terms of riches and also in terms of intelligence uh, and, and IQ. And certainly when it comes to not just average intelligence, but um, extremely high intelligence, that Jews have a ridiculously high percentage. As I was researching this year, I, I read a bunch of articles, and they're in academic journals. There's like 10... Um, academians, not, most of them not Jewish, and they're all trying to figure out a rational explanation for this strange phenomenon of Jews being so smart and Jews being so rich. How do we explain that? Why is that? What is it? Is, is it their culture? Is it education? Which, of course, is related to the Bible. Or maybe it's because it was predicted in the Bible that God wants to bring this uh, nation that's going to have riches, that's going to be uh, smart, so that we can have a huge impact on the world as we have why is it so many leaders we just want to, you know, just we want to do something? And I think for me, the simplest explanation is because God built an neshama into the Jewish and Israeli soul that just wants to do, just wants to accomplish. Okay, and I think that's the simplest explanation. Sometimes it's, it has a negative effect because we're we're such doers that we have a hard time just like chilling. You know, I remember a few years back I was on uh, shlichus in in Africa, and. I was amazed at, at the... Uganda? I, not in Uganda. I'm, I'm connected with the Ugandans also. I have a WhatsApp share with them on Tuesdays. But uh, this is uh, the Lemba tribe at, in Africa at, that I, I did some shlichuyot with them. But anyway, I had some free time, so uh, I, was tour, I was touring the country, and the people were so nice. Like, I'm saying the random Africans, not Jews. They would take me. They had no. Ch- they were just chilling all day. They're hanging out on the farm all day. Why not? I'll take you two hours from your place, this place and that place. Because they were. There's no. There's no rush. They're happy. They weren't. They were. They didn't have this push to like accomplish all day. Write a book. Do this. A podcast. Uh, you know, like another sheer. It's a very Jewish uh, thing. We have this drive. Our neshama just wants to do something. But anyway, I'm I'm, I'm on a tangent. That uh, it has a positive and negative effect. The point is that I think that there's also uh, the prophecy of the Jewish riches and Jewish uh, wisdom is also um, predicted in the Torah. All right. Uh, three more quick prophecies for the nine minutes we have left. I'm going to do this one fast because we all know it already and it's a sad one. And I try to be positive. So we alluded to last time that there was also a prediction that the Jewish people will always be Enemies. We'll always have enemies. There will always be anti-Semitism. We're going to be, as the Torah says in Vayikra, like a driven leaf. We're going to go from land to land to land. We're never going to find a true home. Or as in Dvarim, it writes, Yet even among these nations, you shall find no peace, nor shall your foot find a place to rest. Hashem will give you there an anguished heart and eyes that pine and a despondent spirit. Again, what are the odds that that would happen? If you take any other country, that's not what happens. Okay? Most other countries... When most other nations eventually make do with their situation, they settle down in a nation and either they assimilate or they find a a little place for themselves. Why should it be that every country is going to give them a hard time? Why should that be? And yet, as hundreds of books that have already been written about this topic, the Jewish people have experienced more um, heartbreak and more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kicking out, uh, scattering 
than any other nation in the history of the world. Brought a chart here of just uh, dispersal. Dispersal, that's the word. Yeah. What, what happened in 1862, General Grant? I don't know American history very much. You know what? I don't either. I just brought it. I, I'm not sure. But, Civil War. Apparently, Jews were kicked out even in America at some point by the South uh, in the southern areas. I don't know that either. I guess we'll research it later. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I have a story. Like, it was the South. Yeah. But later. Okay. We'll be right after Shira. I'll stick around. But what, what I don't have, again, I don't think we, we have to dwell on this nowadays. We're just looking around us. In 2022, and we all thought we were done with anti-Semitism. That was so, you know, last century. And here it is, comes back with its ugly head, crazy anti-Semitism, even in America. And there's just this pattern, this crazy pattern, where when we get seemingly too comfortable in any land of our, of our enemies, it seems like Hashem is reminding us that that's not our true home. And uh, we seem to not be able to avoid it until, until that messianic era. When, uh, when Hashem will, uh, will, will end all of it. But again, for our purposes, there was a prediction. There will always be uh, anti-Semitism, and unbelievably, it was fulfilled in our days. Okay, another prediction, which um, I think I put in here. I hope I put it in here. Um, if not, you'll trust me. Uh, okay, maybe I forgot to, to put it in here. Is that the Torah will never be extinguished. Now, this is related to what we said Last week, that the Jewish people will never be, will survive forever, which we already talked about. But I want to just focus on the fact that the Torah that says many times the law of the Torah will not be extinguished. This law is forever. It's not in the source sheet. It's okay. And, um, and the Torah will be forever. And just, oh, it is in there. There it is. Like we say in our davening every day. The Torah will never be forgotten, says Isaiah. The Torah will be forever. And how unlikely that, that is, that, this, that the Torah will still be the same Torah. Rav Yaakov Emden writes that it's a bigger miracle than the splitting of the sea, that our Chumash is exactly the same Chumash, you know, with very, very small textual variants that it was 3,000 years ago. Just compare it, for example, to the Christian Bible. There's thousands of uh, variants in their texts. And they certainly did not experience the persecution with people having to run away with Talmuds and Chumashes uh, right before the enemy got to us. And yet somehow throughout all the thousands of years, we remained, we retained our exact Torah, we retained our Gemara, and not only do we retain it, but we're still keeping it. We're still keeping the law to, uh, in virtually the same, exact same way that we did thousands of years ago, not to be expected at all. We would, as we talked about last week, we would expect assimilation. And here we are, thousands of years later, still keeping the law. And in the 50s, it was predicted that Orthodox Jewry, Judaism, done. It's going, gone away. It's on, the, it's on the low. Of course, they're just going to assimilate. And it, here we are, 100,000 yeshiva bachrim. And every day, a new kola pops up, a new learning program, a new this. You just see with our own eyes, the Torah is just getting stronger and stronger and stronger, uh, con which is contrary to logic, but exactly as the Torah predicts. Okay. I'm going to end with uh, a crazy, a crazy prediction for two. The Gemara in Megillah. I happen to be learning Megillah right now with my Chavrusa. So the Gemara is an open Megillah. Every Yeshiva Bachar learns this Gemara. It's wild. It says, Germania Shel Germany, 
of Edom, near Edom, if they would go out, they would destroy the entire world. If they would get together, there's 300 young princes with crowns tied to their heads in Germany of Edom. And 365 chieftains of Rome. And they, they kill each other every day. And they try to make a, a king in their place. And so they're, they're not able to unite. Sorry, I cut it off, but the Gemara goes on to say that if we would have, if they would get together, they would, again, destroy the world. Okay, so when you read this in Yeshiva for the last 2,000 years, you're like, what are they talking about? Germany and Rome, and if they would come together, they would destroy the world. What the heck is this Agatha talking about? And you just move on to the next stop. But now, with a little bit of hindsight, looking back in history, what maybe, again, maybe, but what maybe is this Gemara talking about? It seems like it's talking about the fact that Germany and Rome, Italy, was able to reunite. Christianity. Right, well, Christianity also is related. And the Holy Roman Empire had 300 kingdoms of Germany, which is pretty crazy. And then after Napoleon comes and conquers the Germans, the Germans united. In 1882, Italy joined forces with Germany and Austria-Hungary, and they, and they stopped fighting. But in 1914, Germany started World War War, causing the loss of 16 million people. In World War II, Germany actually joined together with Italy, and that caused 50 to 85 million people to die, as we well know. When Germany and Italy came together, it was pretty scary for the world. So uh, a little bit of a scary version of an unbelievable Torah prediction in the Gemara itself. And uh, I'll leave for your own reading. I included one more uh, prediction of the Zohar, of the, of the mystical works, about what happens when uh, the children of Yishmael are going to take, take over the land of Israel and the end of days in the Messianic era, that, um, that, that's the end of that story. So you can read it on your own. But I think we did a pretty good job of showing that there are many, at least 15, and there's still many more, but I'm just giving a taste of the ocean, uh, unlikely predictions made in our sources and yet somehow have been fulfilled. I think this certainly offers evidence, a strong case for the divinity of the Torah, that the author of the Torah was someone who knows what's going to happen in the future. And uh, certainly, Akadosh Baruch Hu knows what, knows what the future is going to bring. And as Hashem, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. He's going to bring Yeshua's and blessings. So, shkoyach again for a fun cheer. Hope you guys enjoyed it as much.